Hi there, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This sermon by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, A Friday Night in the Promised Land. All right, picture this. It's Friday night, you're with a bunch of friends, and someone says, what should we do? Do you turn to the latest movie, a sporting event, a restaurant, or do you turn to where there's fullness of joy, the very presence of God? Please feel free to contact us at www.ellerslie.com. Enjoy the message. We have a tendency to seek satisfaction in very, very strange places. And as Christians, we have not been trained to turn to Jesus as our remedy, as our solace, as our satisfaction. We are when it comes to the issue of sin and when it comes to guilt that is in our soul. We understand that there is one solace and one way of dealing with this. And so most of us as Christians have figured that one out. Some of us still need help in that one. However, there's a lot of dimension to life. And we find ourselves, whether it's uh, Monday morning, Wednesday nights, Thursday morning, Friday nights, Saturday uh, midday, that we have different things that we're doing in our life. And instead of finding our satisfaction, our reprieve, our replenishment in Jesus Christ, we look to this world. I would like to press on that today, and I would like to explore the heart and the mind of God on the, on the issue of how we handle every moment of our life and who Jesus truly is in relationship to our need. Because we understand our need in the spiritual sense, but we have psychological need, we have emotional need, we have physical need, and if we are f- turning to other things outside of Jesus Christ to meet those particular needs, we are defrauding our Jesus. Jesus is not just our spiritual all in all. He is our emotional, psychological, and physical all in all. He is everything we could need. That might need a little convincing on your part, but that is my premise as we begin uh, today. Uh, Do you want to put up our our keynote? A Friday night in the promised land. I remember sort of one of the classic uh, long-standing jokes, not really a joke, but humorous uh, things that we we talk about in our our family is on a Friday night when everyone sort of gets together and they say, well, what should we do? And then there's always that one person in the group that says, we could pray. And then everyone goes, "Mm, yes, yes. And then they look for the next option. There is a notion, and I'm going to just build on it as a a placeholder, but there's a notion that Friday night is our night. Okay, we can give ourselves to work and to labor and to strenuous spiritual activity, physical activity all week long. Friday night is our time for replenishment. And so that's a little hint as far as this title, Friday Night in the Promised Land. This is going to be a very unusual message. Um, I'm going to lay out my raw materials in a different fashion than I typically do. Instead of giving a few uh, quotes or scriptures, I'm going to give a few stories. A Honeymoon with Jesus. This is, uh, I was standing next to Leslie when she was sharing this story on Thursday morning, and some dominoes began to fall in, in, in my mind, which led to this particular message. And she was giving a story that Jackie Pullinger relates, 
And it is about a man uh, in China who radically gave his life to Jesus Christ. And in China, you know, you're not allowed to proselytize. You're not allowed to spread uh, this thing called Christianity. And so he was a problem, and he was stuck in prison. He was a, he was a big-time violator uh, of, you know, the, the, the rules here in China. And so he is stuck in solitary confinement, no light. I don't remember how long it was. I, I want to say that it was a year. Uh, Leslie's better at telling this story. But I think it was somewhere around a year without any light even touching his eyes. Isn't that amazing? He would have something shoved in under his door every day as food, and he'd have to reach in the dark and, and eat. He was cut off from every pleasure, every solace, everything that would bring satisfaction. And you could ask yourself, how would you handle this? First of all, we have a tendency to hear stories of the persecuted, stories of the suffering, and we, we have, there's a detachment from it. It's like, oh, those poor people. Too bad they're not Americans. Uh, and we don't understand what it means to follow Jesus with complete abandon. We understand what it means to follow Jesus in America oftentimes. And I know there's some of you that aren't from America, but the point is there's an ease. There's a comfort that swirls about us here, and we take it for granted. But if you were stripped of everything, what would be left in your soul? Would a smile be on your face? It's pitch black. You have no company. You can't get on the Internet and view your Facebook account. You don't have that cell phone. You have no link to your email. You cannot call out. You cannot chat. There's a down moment. In fact, it's perfectly silent. Is that haunting to you? You have nothing. You can't even see anything. There's no pleasure to the eyes. There's no pleasure to the ears. There's no pleasure to the soul from this natural realm. You're in a dark cell. And you get your food, and don't you get the hunch that the food isn't very good either? And I tell you what, we find a lot of satisfaction in food, too. In America, I remember the difference between America and Australia when I was over there and I was going through their, uh, you know, the grocery store aisle, and they had like four cereal. Muesli was one of them, so that immediately brings it down to three. Uh, it was so utterly dull that I, you sort of get depressed as an American just walking down the aisle. It's like, how do you survive over here with three cereal? Uh, Pixar... Uh, has an entire cereal bar with almost every single cereal that's ever been created in like these open, clear containers, and they can just sit in there all day long. They carry it to all their meetings. Cereal! Oh, wouldn't that be fun? No cereal! Because what's coming under that door probably has larva growing in it. They're not going to treat you as dignity or as royalty. So you even lose that taste, that satisfaction to your taste buds and to your stomach. You're always hungry. There's always a need for more. How are you doing in this scenario? Okay, now you'll notice the, the, the title here. Some of you that were you know, in the school this, this week know what this is leading to. But the point of the story is this. When all is stripped away, do you have what is sufficient to find joy, solace, and satisfaction in your life? Well, that's a good question. Does God intend to meet us at that level? Is there something that God desires to bring into our life to make up the difference when the world is stripped away? This man, when he was finally freed from solitary confinement, literally, I don't know if he lost his eyesight completely, but he could hardly see if, if that, maybe shadows and things like that. 
because his eyes had, had been damaged without the, the sun for a year, without light for a year. And he radiated. He literally had a glow about him. He's been in darkness for a year without any of the, the things that we find our life and our satisfaction in, and there's a glow and a radiance about him. And as Jackie shares the story, he's asked, what was it like? How did you make it? How could anyone go through this? And his response shocked the church. It was like a honeymoon with Jesus. I wish I could go back and do it again. Uh, Cuckoo. Uh, could we take him to a psychologist, some type of you know, doctor who helps with things like this? No one can survive in a situation like that. No one that finds their dependence on the things of this world can survive. But if you find your dependence, your solace, and your satisfaction in the person of Jesus Christ, when it's all stripped away, it becomes a honeymoon It becomes a more intensified experience with him because now there is nothing to blur it. Now there is nothing to distract. It is just you and the one you love. Now that isn't something that our flesh is craving. But when I hear a story like that, I'm fascinated. I remember Jackie Pollinger also telling the story of the fact she was living in the walled city of Hong Kong. I think she was there around 45 years. This is one of the darkest dens of... Of, of evil on the planet Earth. The police, it's like this, uh, I don't know, a few square blocks, uh, and there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions, in this little area. And crime runs rampant. This is where you escape to if the, if the government is against you because the police will not even go in there. She goes in there as a single woman in her young 20s. She lives there 45 years. She had a little, you know, hovel type of room, and she made this statement. She was speaking to Americans, and she says, you may have your own bed in your own room, but I know God's grace. She seems to know something, and the way she said it seemed awfully convincing that she has something better than we have. Yet after the natural reason through it, which one sounds better? A room she, was, she has all these women that are detoxing from heroin addiction. You know, in her room, laying on her floor, sort of on her bed, flopped over, uh, in a dark place without any of the, the things of earth that we are attracted to. This is darkness, it smells, it's disgusting. And she makes a statement, you may have your own bed in your own room. Ha, huh, I know God's grace. I'd sort of like to know God's grace. I'd like to know what that is. But the only way you find it is when you're willing to disconnect from all the things that you are finding satisfaction in outside of Jesus Christ and truly plug into him alone and say, God, you have something that I know is the real thing. And I am willing to forsake all of this to find it. Bourbon Street Bewilderment. Those are good titles, aren't they? Friday Night in the Promised Land. Doesn't, it sounds a little corny for a good, solid, lightning, thunder and lightning message. Bourbon Street Bewilderment. I don't know if I've ever shared this at Ellerslie, so this could be a new story. This is a classic story in the Ludi archives, and I don't know if it ever even made it into any of our books. But in my life, 
there is a moment that is very significant to me. I was a missionary, and I was down in New Orleans, and we were living in a spot that was right down from the projects. It was very dark, and so it was a whole missionary team, and we were down there with this mission work that would uh, was sort of a risk-taking type of uh, missionary group that it was very uncomfortable for me where I was at in my life, spiritually. In other words, I wanted to share Jesus, but do we have to go to the projects to do it? I mean, there's a lot of nicer places that we could share Jesus here. I mean, this is just a little extreme. And then, this is right before Mardi Gras. So people are descending on New Orleans. Uh, you know, it's like fly, flies on very bad smelling things, okay? That's what's happening in New Orleans at the time that I'm down there. And this one guy, one of the leaders, gets this idea. And he says, I think we should go evangelize on Bourbon Street tonight. It's a Friday night. Uh, <clears throat> and it was optional. You didn't have to go. And guess what's going on inside of Eric's mind? No way. There's one thing that I've never really liked, and that is evangelism, like street corner preaching, that type of stuff. It seems to lack social grace. Okay, people laugh at you when you do that. They mock you. You always look like the idiot. That's not an appropriate way to share Jesus. This is my mindset back then. And I, that's where I would usually whip out the thing about relational evangelism. Classic excuse to get out of putting yourself in the way of difficulty. By the way, I'm, very, I'm a huge proponent of relational evangelism. Don't get me wrong. However, there is a time and a place to confront the world and to share the truth of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that has to be on a street corner. It's the way we live as Christians because we care about the souls around him. Jesus did what his father was doing. He only spoke what his father was speaking. And if Jesus is speaking something and if he's doing something, the Christian is responsible to do it. And so there might be a time when Jesus stands on a street corner and says something. The question is, are we willing to be the guy who, his, whose mouth he uses? Well, that's a little scary. So here I was in New Orleans the mass amount of people are, are just coming in and flooding Bourbon Street at this time because Mardi Gras is just about to start. So chaos and sin. Everyone, I think it seems like, is droves of drunk people uh, in Bourbon Street. And Bourbon Street isn't just drunkenness. It is darkness. It is not just vile sexual stuff. It is demonic stuff. I mean, it's a, it's a weird place down there. And so... Who wants to come and evangelize? So here they had this plan. They were going to build a cross. They had these two big pieces of wood. They were going to build a cross, and they were going to stand in the middle of Bourbon Street with the cross. And I was like, no thanks. Uh, you know, I'll stay here. I'll pray. Uh, suddenly, prayer on a Friday night sounded great. <laughs> Someone said, Eric, I really think you should go. No, I... You know, it's not really the type of Christian witnessing that I'm into. Uh, Eric, just pray about it. Ask God. I hate things like that. <laughs> Ask God. I, I know what God wants. He wants me to stay here and pray. <laughs> All right. Okay, God. Maybe I was a little hasty. Do you actually want me to do this? I, then I plug my ear. You ever done that too? You act like you're asking. Meanwhile, you plug your ear and you're like talking really loud to yourself. And you know, so later tonight when I'm praying, just so that you can't hear it when God says, of course I want you to go. 
I set this all up for you. So it's almost like this group knew that I was the guy who came from polished suburbia. I had it all together. So the group all knew that Eric needed to be broken at a certain level because I was the guy with it all together. Everyone else came from like drug addiction, past, and they're all, they all had their issues and they all wore it on their sleeve, but Eric didn't wear his issues on his sleeve. Eric was together. And so you could just see them talking. I really think Eric needs to go on this. You know, they're probably praying over there. If I were to get deeper into the story, they were praying on a Friday night for me to be uncorked. So here I am, and whatever did it, I don't know what happened, but I actually said, yeah, I, I think I'm going to go. Even as I'm saying it, I'm like, you've got to be kidding, Eric. That isn't a formal commitment. You can still back out. I, I, I think I'm going to go. What's wrong with me? I remember them even getting these pieces of wood out and sort of saying, now here's the top piece. Do we have the, and they're like getting these things together. I'm like, you've got to be kidding. Why do we need to bring that? I mean, it's bad enough going into Bourbon Street. We don't need a cross. It was huge. So then we park somewhere, I don't know where it was, but it was a ways away. And we need to carry the pieces of wood. Now you have to realize my background is, I was trained as a gentleman. If there's something heavy to carry, you don't give it to the girls. So look at this piece of wood. It used to be carried by two guys. Now, oh, I need to carry the piece of wood to Bourbon Street now. And so we get out. You know, I, I was thinking I'm going to walk a good distance from this. But instead, I get associated with it. Okay, on the way in there, as soon as someone else could take it over and start building it, I was, you know, out of the way. It's like, oh, okay. So they're about 20 feet away. I'm standing in Bourbon Street. Uh, like, God bless these people. God bless these people. This is supremely uncomfortable, God. How did I get into this? They're building this cross. They're putting it up in the middle of Bourbon Street. If any of you have been there on a Friday night or a Saturday night, you can only imagine. In the midst of darkness, hate, Satanism, everything that is grotesque to a Christian has been set free. Oh, this is a bad place to be. And they're building this cross in the middle of it, and these people are spitting, laughing, throwing beer. I mean, everything was horrible. I mean, why in the world would you do this? And so they're over there, and they're perfectly pleasant doing it, and they build the cross, and they stand by it. I'm 20 feet away watching this. So about the same distance you know, to the, uh, the, the video camera back there. And I'm just like, <clears throat> yeah, and God, if you wanted me to share the gospel with someone, you could bring them up to me and... And have them ask me a question like, what are you standing here for on a Friday night on Bourbon Streets? Are you with that, those people with the cross? Oh, by chance, you know, I wouldn't do that. But uh, I'd love to tell you about uh, Jesus. God, make it easy on me. Okay, so I've been standing there about 20 minute, minutes in absolute misery. It was horrible. There was nothing fun about it. And the guy over at the cross, I, I knew they were conspiring. Everyone else was out, like, handing out tracts and doing things like that, and I was just standing there. Suddenly, someone was sent over to me, and they said, we want to know if you want to hold the cross. And you know, here's the weird thing. There was nothing in me that wanted to do that, and what came out of my mouth? Okay. <laughs> I was in, like, one of those dreamlands, like, surreal moments when I'm, like, wandering towards the cross going, no, this isn't happening. Who took over my body? <laughs> and they left me there. They left me there with the cross in the middle of Bourbon Street. I want to give you a peek 
inside the soul of Eric Ludi once I wrap my arm around that cross. Possibly still to this day, one of the greatest experiences I've ever had in my entire life. And I do not know how to explain it, other than that honeymoon with Jesus story. I think I understand it, at least a slice of it. When I was identifying with Jesus in the midst of darkness, I was filled with such a radiance and a joy. I had a smile. I always have a smile, right? But this was different. This was a smile so big on my face that it was hurting. (laughs) I mean, I was so happy. It was like I sensed that I was standing with Jesus in this world. I'm like, I'm with him. There was no more confusion. I've officially transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Hey, world, I'm unashamed. It was like something clicked, something unlocked within the soul of Eric Ludi. And I was clinging to this cross, and I actually wanted people to come up and hit me. Hit me. I would love to share in Christ's sufferings. Everything that it says in Scripture was suddenly, ching, 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 unlocking. I felt it. I felt an intimate connection with Jesus Christ in the midst of the most hostile territory. I loved it. I, there was this one guy that walked by, and I saw him walk by. He was about five feet from me. I smiled at him like, hi. And he was like, and he turned around, and he walked another 10 feet or so and looked back. You know, in the midst of the crowd, I was still looking at him like, hi. (laughs) He went about 40 more feet, stopped, turned around. I was like, hi. (laughs) Heaven, come to earth. At around 1 in the morning, 2 in the morning, I don't remember what it was, someone came up to me and said, Eric, do you mind if I hold the cross? Here's what's going on inside my mind. Yes, I mind. This is my cross. (laughs) I had people mocking me. People, I don't remember all the things that happened, but I mean, it was like the classic things that were happening. I mean, beer, you know, all over. I mean, it was just a dream situation. And some guy has the audacity to set me up for this situation and then take it from me. You can't do that. My cross. (laughs) But of course, you know, you have to be kind and thoughtful of everyone else, so it's like, all right, here you go. Uh, He grabbed the cross with his big smile going, and I walked off to the side. I felt naked. Now when people are walking by me, they they don't know that I'm with Jesus. I, I wanted to be with that cross. It was really amazing. Remember that guy that was in prison? I wish I could go back again. You know what I was strategizing? I'm gonna go home. I'm going to build myself a cross, and I'm going to walk around everywhere with it. (laughs) You know what happened the next day when I woke up? I remember thinking, that didn't happen, did it? Why would I ever do that? I stood with a cross in the middle of Bourbon Street. I remember the euphoria, but it didn't make sense. I was like, that's crazy. You see, I stepped across some type of threshold of obedience and identification with Jesus Christ, and there was some richness that was found there. I disconnected from the world, and I entered into an alliance with Jesus Christ, even publicly, and I said, I'm with him. And there was some jubilance that was associated with that that is hard to describe. How can you be ridiculed by the masses and find such beauty and joy in it? Well, welcome to Jesus Christ. How can you be stuck in a prison cell stripped of all your comforts, and come out with a radiant face and say, I would love to go back. It was like a honeymoon. 
This is Christianity. We have been shortchanged. I've only barely tasted what I'm talking about tonight. This morning. I'm still stuck at night, I guess. I've barely tasted this, but I know how real it is. There is a satisfaction in following Jesus that is impossible to put words to. And it doesn't make sense when you try and communicate it to others. They look at my life and they're like, so you don't do this, you don't do this, and you don't do this. Yeah, but that's not what I focus on. I have Jesus. I spend my time on Jesus. It's just like, that sounds really dull. Yeah, I know what it sounds like. I, I, I know. Oh, it's good. The great shift the realization that Jesus is not the great is the great opportunity and not the great obligation. There's many of us that would look at the cross on Bourbon Street and say, "Oh, God probably wants me to stand with that cross." Ah, oh, yeah, that sounds like Christianity. I need to make myself a fool, stand there and be miserable, get beer spilled on me, have people slap me, spit on me. But that's the spiritual thing to do. We're missing something. What we don't understand is that when we identify with Jesus, it is the great opportunity. Who gets the cross? Hey, can I have the cross? You know, we want to knock people out of the way to get it. And of course, that doesn't seem very Christian. We want the privilege of being the one to suffer. You start measuring persecution in the, in the church of China. And you begin to realize that when someone has been in prison for 10 years... Oh, it's impressive, and they pat him on the back. It's like, that's good, 10 years. Well, how about this guy with 20? Ah, 20, good job, buddy. The 30, oh, those guys are treated as the royalty. They've, they've tasted it. They're the ones you want to hang around. They have the radiance. They have the beauty. Richard Wormbrandt from Voice of the Martyrs, who suffered in prison, I don't know, total, you know, must have been close to 15 to 20 years. I don't remember what it was. It was a long time. I remember when I beheld him in his life. He was giving a message, a little small screen. It wasn't even a very good video. And he had to remove his shoes because he, his feet were so tortured for so many years that he couldn't even wear shoes. So there he is on a stage sitting, and his feet were bare. And he's sharing. And all I remember thinking is, I want what he has. Whatever that man has, I must have it. There is a mentality shift when you truly grasp the kingdom of heaven. To the guys on Thursday, we were describing how the endless frontier mentality affects this. And for instance, most of us as Christians live aimed over a cliff. And we constantly are staring at what we can't do. It's like, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh, that means I can't have fun like the rest of the world does. And Christianity becomes the great obligation. Oh, well, I want to go to heaven and I want to make Jesus Christ happy, so I won't do these things. But we're aimed at the world. We're focused this direction. It's a cliff. And this direction leads to darkness and death. But guess what? Hey, we're not heading over the cliff. We are just standing there longingly staring at the edge of the cliff. Some of us are you know, like slipping off. The, the rocks are starting to go. And some of us like fall. And then one of us is like holding them. Oh, hey, okay, need some more help here. We spend our life aimed in this direction. And what we were talking amongst the guys about on Thursday was the shift, the great shift. And that is, God taps us on the shoulder, and he says, hey guys, I got something better. 
but it's this direction. And so if we turn around, what we realize is there's an endless frontier, this direction. And in Galatians 5, it says the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the next line is this, and against these things, there's no law. This direction, law. Don't do this, thou shalt not. Oh, don't even think of that. This direction, God has put all these signs up saying, death, this will destroy you. This direction, no law. An endless frontier, you want love? Ask. He'll give you as much as you ask for and as much as you seek. Joy, have at it. The treasure chest is open. It's not locked. You don't get to the joy treasure chest. I like, okay. Oh, it's locked. It's unlocked and open. He says, you want joy? Take me. Take me in. Let me be your joy. Peace? So many of us are seeking peace this direction, over the cliff. But Jesus Christ is this direction. He's the prince of it. We must turn. We must shift our paradigm. We must walk in a new direction. Jesus is not the great obligation. He is not what we have to give up. Oh, I have to give up this. I have to give up, uh, give up dying at the bottom of a canyon. Oh, it'd be so fun to you know, writhe in pain on the bottom of this canyon. That sounds great. What we're giving up is nothing. What God is offering is everything. Yet we spend most of our life pining after death and darkness. This is the world. And yes, there are laws all, all posted around. This will kill you. This will kill you. This will kill you. And if you focus in that direction, you'll be miserable. But this direction, the endless frontier of knowing Jesus Christ and his grace, the treasure chest of his person is open to you. The inheritance of the saints is made available and bequeathed. Who wouldn't want that? Standing in the middle of Bourbon Street, in the midst of darkness, being in a prison cell in the midst of darkness without the flavor of this world to satisfy. What will you be like when it's removed? Well, you can find it now in Jesus Christ. And then if this world ever takes itself from you and strips you and begins to torment you and begins to do everything it can to bring misery your way, all it does is increase your pleasure. I remember this one story of these men, I think it was in Romania. All they had was chains. And they were, they were chained down in a prison cell. And it was one of those slimy floors, you know, just disgusting. And where everyone else was complaining, let us out, we did no wrong. These men were asked uh, about their stay in prison. And they said, oh, it was, it was amazing. They gave us instruments. They gave us instruments. That was their perspective. Because with their chains, they praised God. They gave us instruments. Not, they chained us. They gave us instruments. That's the great shift where no matter what this world does, or no matter what this world, you lose in it. It becomes the gift of heaven to you. The seismic impact of love. Serving no longer as a chore, but as an act of love. There's another illustration that I gave this week to the guys. When I was growing up, my mom would assign me chores. I didn't like chores. I, I could ask how many of you like chores. Chores by very nature are not necessarily fun, 
But there's an obligation. Now, sometimes we can do chores and make our allowance, okay? And Hudson has some of those right now. And they're not bad. You know, when you know that there's actually a benefit involved, oh, well, it's not that bad doing the chore. But then there's those chores that just come from being a part of the, the family. You know, and we as kids aren't too excited about that. And parents always seem to be very excited about these. It's like, oh, and now you're old enough to have chores. You're like, you know what? This doesn't sound like a benefit. You're trying to make it sound good. So... Here it is. Here's the scene. The Ludi family had a rotation. You know, Chrissy on Monday night would clean the kitchen after dinner. Mark on Tuesday night, and then Eric on Wednesday night. I was convinced that there was a conspiracy because it was always Wednesday night. Wait, I just did this. And my mom would say, no, it was Mark last night and Chrissy. Then it seemed like I was always doing it. And so... Here it came. My friends had said, yeah, can you, you know, meet us down after dinner at the, you know, the basketball court? We're going to play a great pickup game. You know, this, that's how guys talk uh, at that age. And so we get done with dinner, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to go. And my mom's like, Eric, you still have to clean the kitchen. What? I did that last night. No, that was Mark. So here goes the conversation. It's like, oh, no, I did it. Tonight. No, that was Chrissy. No. Oh, I told my buddies I was going to be down there. Eric, you clean the kitchen first. Okay, now, why am I going to clean the kitchen? What's my motivation? Because I want to? Oh, no. It's because if I don't, bad things happen in the Ludi household. Okay, and I've experienced these bad things before. It's called the fear of punishment. And so Eric is motivated out of a fear of punishment, and that's the reason I will do what I need to do. It's an act of duty, an act of obligation. It's because, yes, I carry the Ludi name. I don't want to lose my room at the house. I don't want my bed to be given up, where I'm sticking out on the streets in some hotel, maybe, trying to make my way in life because I refused to live under the, the authority structure that was in this home. Who wants that? So guess what? Eric does his chore. But when you're motivated out of a fear of punishment, you know what you do? The bare minimum. Okay, what do I need to do to get it done? That's your attitude. How little do I need to give of myself to accomplish what needs to be done? And so my mom leaves the room, and I see a little spaghetti stain on the counter. Well, I'm not going to clean the whole counter. That takes time. So I'm going to give the illusion that I clean the counter by getting a little rag damp on the very end and then and scrubbing that spaghetti stain. So when my mom comes in, she won't know. It'll look as if I clean the whole counter. This is how we live our Christian life, many of us. We are attempting to do the bare minimum. Why? Because Christianity to us is a chore. It's an obligation as opposed to the great delight of our life. Let me switch the scene around on you because that, by the way, when you try and do the bare minimum, it makes your life worse. My mom comes in and says, did you clean the counter? Well, I cleaned that spot. It's clean, okay? There's no need for anything else. Eric, did you clean the counter? You know what is required. Oh, I would spend an hour in there instead of 10 minutes because I was always trying to do the bare minimum. My job actually became worse. That's the wrong way of doing it. My mom's gone once. And I, something strange comes over Eric Ludi, and that is that I desire to do something special for my mom. It's a weird thing. It's like, huh, I would like to do something for her. What could be done that would make her happy, that would make her feel loved? I could clean the kitchen. So there's this dirty kitchen, the same dirty kitchen that has faced me many times in the past, but I have resented and I've complained about, but now there's a different motivation. If you have a different motivation, and you see it as an opportunity, and it's an opportunity of love, 
Here's the difference. I start cleaning. The same job I did, and I grunted and complained about it all day long, or all night long, now suddenly I'm loving it. Have you ever had this where you're doing something out of love? Whenever I'd go over to my grandparents and I'd help clean the kitchen, I loved it. Because it wasn't an obligation anymore. It was an opportunity. I get to be with my grandparents and clean their kitchen. And so I'm cleaning the kitchen, and I'm, I'm actually going the extra mile. That's the difference between chore and, and, and love opportunity. Is you go the extra mile. You don't say, how little do I need to do? Now you say, how much can I do? So now I'm picking everything up, scrubbing it, I'm making it poly, you know, sparkle and shine, you know, spray the special stuff. I'm looking under the sink. I'm like, what is this? All right. And then I'm like polishing it. It's like shining. I stand back. I look at it. I'm like, this looks good. My brother comes into the kitchen, you know, to get a glass of water. I'm like, hey, hey, go into the bathroom and get it. I just clean the kitchen. The whole while I'm doing it, I'm picturing my mom walking in and going, oh, who cleaned the kitchen? I want to see her expression because this is an act of love, that I want to see it register in her mind that this was a gift to her. And suddenly, the motivation is completely different. The experience is completely different. We have the opportunity to live life that way every day, every minute where you delight in it even though you're doing something that everyone on the outside is like, you're cleaning the kitchen. I know, and it's a wonderful job, isn't it? They're like, every time I've cleaned the kitchen, it's been miserable. Oh, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. Well, when I went to prison and they turned out the lights, I was miserable. You're doing it wrong. Well, when I stood in the middle of Bourbon Street with a cross, it wasn't fun at all. You're doing it wrong. We have the privilege of doing it right. Let me give you some scriptures. We greatly rejoice. We rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now, these aren't full scriptures. Here's, let me give you my strategy here. If you were to look these up, you're, there's other dimensions of this that I'm literally lifting out purposely. Okay, I'm not trying to give false doctrine to you. I'm showing you what Peter, Jesus, and Paul, and James all say. And there's this crescendoing Message. Listen to this collection. We greatly rejoice. We, we rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Blessed are we. Let us rejoice and be exceeding glad. We may be glad with exceeding joy. We are exceeding joyful. We count it all joy. And every one of us should pause and say, I need that. I want that. What do they have? What do they have? You want to see what I took out of these scriptures? You want to see what was lifted out? Because it usually causes us to miss these statements. We are grieved by many trials. We are reviled, persecuted, and falsely accused. We are partakers of Christ's sufferings. We endure tribulations and face trials and testings. Okay, now you were just saying to yourself, I want that. Well, not on those terms. Yes, on those terms. Could you imagine another way of saying it, which is a very elementary school way of saying it is, and we get to clean the kitchen nightly. And we get to vacuum the whole house. We consider it pure joy. What used to be a chore has become an, an opportunity. This is a privilege that we have. Okay, now, you're saying, now let's look at this list again. We are grieved by many trials. We were reviled, persecuted, and falsely accused. We are partakers of Christ's sufferings. We endure tribulations and face trials and testings. We are stuck in prison cells with no light and bad food. No Facebook, no Starbucks, no movies, no television, no music. 
What is our statement as Christians? And yet, we greatly rejoice. We rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Blessed are we. Let us rejoice and be exceeding glad. We may be glad with exceeding joy. We are exceeding joyful. We count it all joy. If you see a discrepancy between what's going on in your thinking and your soul and this, I want you to realize the Bible is right and you are wrong. You need to correct yourself to this pattern. And a better way of saying it is you need God to correct you to this pattern because it's his great delight. It is not something you need to whip up. You don't just tell yourself and go, I need to be happy. I need to be joyful. You need the God of joy to invade. You need the God of joy to actually overtake your existence and change your paradigm. You need to allow him to love through you, to change your disposition. And sometimes that happens by you standing 20 feet away from the cross on Bourbon Street, being willing to say, God, do you want me there? And yes, he does. And there you are. You're near it. But there needs to be one more step forward, and that is you need to identify with it. You need to take that next step and wrap your arm around it and say, I'm with him. Some of us are staring. We're so close. We're staring at that cross in the middle of Bourbon Street. We want to stand with Jesus. We want to have all this. We want to be able to be thrown into prison and come out with radiance and joy and consider it a honeymoon with Jesus. But there is another step that God is saying into my sufferings. Come follow me. Yes, there was revilement, there was persecutions, there was false accusation. Yes, I realize that that scares you, but follow me and you will find everything that you delight in because I know how the human soul was made and I'm the only one that can satisfy it. The first kiss, relinquishing the temporal pleasures of this world for the lasting euphorias of Christ's presence. Now, I don't want to talk about the first kiss. It's more of a symbol. Leslie and I saved our first kiss for our wedding day. And at the time, it was completely unheard of. The only, here, you want to know uh, the, our illustrations of living differently in the physical? Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, and then Leslie's grandmother. Whose side was that on? Was that Janet's side or was that Rich's side? She was on, in some carriage, this is the way I picture it at least, on her way to her wedding, and the, the, her husband leaned in to kiss her, and she slapped him and said there'll be plenty of time for that after the wedding. Isn't that great? That's in our heritage. You know, I just married into that heritage. But there's a symbol that Leslie and I discovered. First of all, when you set something aside, it doesn't mean it's bad. There's nothing wrong with a kiss. But when you willingly are able to give it up and say, I'm going to find my satisfaction in Jesus Christ, you know what happens? You know that Leslie and I still got a kiss? And I want you to know that kiss was a thousand times better than any normal kiss on a wedding. And the kisses that follow are a thousand times better than the normal kisses that follow. We received something that is above and beyond because there was a willingness to relinquish. It's a principle. It has very little to do with kisses. It's a principle of detaching from the things that we typically find satisfaction in to find that satisfaction in Jesus Christ and thusly allowing Jesus Christ to give us a greater pleasure and a greater joy. And that isn't even our motivation. But that's what comes as a result of it. This is a paraphrase from Leonard Ravenhill because Leslie would probably remember the paraphrase but she wasn't in the room when I was writing it. Or she would remember the exact quote. The American church has turned to a counterfeit pleasure, a counterfeit peace, and a counterfeit joy. Instead of finding the fullness of joy in the presence of God and pleasures forevermore at the Lord's right hand, we have sought it in Hollywood and in professional sports. I remember when Leslie and I heard this quote. 
our movies that we watched, I mean, they were better than everyone else's. I mean, we were held to a high level of accountability. I go into the video store and guess what? The person across the counter goes, oh, are you Eric Ludy, the one who wrote the book, When God Writes Your Love Story? And he's looking at my movie. And then he's looking at my history. High level of accountability. And it causes you to rent Herbie. <laughs> However, in the process, guess what? We still found a satisfaction and a solace in turning to Hollywood. Oh, it was the, you know, more tame version. The one that was approved, you know, Christian approved in our culture. It's like, oh, you know, that's not that bad. Who comes up with that list, by the way, of, you know, what's not that bad? Who defines that? Because if something is taking away the position of Jesus Christ in your life, even Herbie can be that bad. Because it is taking something that belongs to Jesus. It is taking a position Something we turn to. When the times get tough, are we turning to the movie or are we turning to Jesus? When we are feeling weak, when we're bent down, when we're burdened, where are we turning? Because God knows what the answer must be. We must go to him. Instead, most of us turn to something else, a counterfeit. Now, yours might not be professional sports in Hollywood. That nipped me in the bud. That was me. Professional sports, what's funny is I gave up professional sports 16 years ago. I didn't watch them anymore. Every once in a while, Leslie would say, you know, you could, I'm going to go out today. Why don't you watch the Bronco game? Oh, okay, that's, that's great. Uh, you take, take your time. Games are usually about two and a half hours long. Don't come back early. You know, it's like, oh, a Bronco game. So I didn't even watch the Broncos typically. Sometimes I'd be washing the car and, you know, I'd have the game on. But I'd given it up. It still had me. I would look through sports scores. My Yahoo would come up, you know, every time I'd turn on the internet, my Yahoo, and it had all the sports scores. I didn't watch the game, but now I could relive the game by clicking on it and read all the, you know, the things that the editors are saying. You know, every pundit is saying, and it's like, oh! And God said, you're turning to something else. There's something in me. I don't know if any of you can relate to this. I love information. I want data. There's some movie a long time ago with some robot. I was like, feed me. You know, and he wanted data. That's the way I am. It's like I need to be filled with something. I want intrigue. I want to know what's going on. I don't like to be cut off. The idea of being in a prison cell and not having any connection. Oh, I, could you give me a telegram? Give me an update? Give at least some big details that are happening in the world. I don't want to be completely cut off. And God's saying, come with me. Separate because I want you to know that you can find whatever that is in me. You can find satisfaction for your intellectual curiosities in my word. You will be completely satisfied, but you must give up turning to that and begin to turn to me. Does that mean newspapers are bad? Does that mean news is bad? Does that mean, sometimes it is, uh, does that mean that sports and throwing a, a pigskin, you know, and having someone catch it is bad? Does that mean because it's on 35 millimeter film, it's bad? No. It's if it holds the position of God in your life and you find yourself turning to it instead of to God. Do we all have to go into a prison cell and have it completely black and eat larval-laden food to be spiritual? No. Whether we're living in plenty or in want, we need to know the secret that he is our all in all, and he it will give us strength for whatever we are needing to address and meet in our life. 
Okay, I'm going to give this scripture a few more times, so you might as well just settle in and get used to it. Thou will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. That is not poetry. That is truth. Or as we say oftentimes here at Ellerslie, that's fact. In his presence is the fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Not temporal. You do things in the world and you have a satisfaction for a moment. Maybe a couple hours. You know, there's, there's certain things that are, oh, it's, it's wonderful. It's a great feeling. And then it dissipates. And you must go back to it again to create that ongoing dependence, to fill that void, to meet the need. Do you believe this statement? That in his presence is the fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Because if you don't believe it, you're in a bad place this morning. Because you are hearing from someone who has personally tested this and found it to be proven true. And that's going to be my challenge to you as well. This is real. Less than I came to this point, I don't know, it was about four years ago now, where we said, we're going to stand on that as a rock. And we are going to allow God to take us away from certain things in this world so that we can find this reality out of Psalms in our life and be a testimony to what God can do. The World Series of Pleasure. I remember a conversation I had with Leslie, and let me go back to, oh, what was it, early 90s, maybe mid-90s. It was when the Broncos played the Green Bay Packers in the Super Bowl. I don't remember the exact date. You'd think I would. I used to be the sports almanac. Uh, but the Broncos had lost, what was it, four Super Bowls? I don't really want to relive it. Uh, and it was painful. I mean, those of you that have grown up in Colorado, it was miserable. We would make it all the way to the big game, and then our, we'd be dashed against the rocks. And so here we were. John Elway, Terrell Davis, the best team we've ever had, and we make it once again to the big game. And we, had, we were so gun-shy, skittish, when we'd get to this game, and I had that feeling. We're going to do it! We're going to do it! And I had just flown back. I was actually in, I think, Wisconsin that morning, and I needed to fly back to Colorado. And I uh, had a green uh, shirt on, and I didn't realize it, that here it is, Bronco Sunday, and I'm wearing a green shirt. And in Wisconsin, you know, that was great. The problem is I was flying into Denver on the day of the Super Bowl. And so I ran to a supermarket right when I got back and uh, bought a, uh, a Super Bowl uh, sweatshirt. I was actually wearing it on Saturday. That's what caused me to think about this. I was like, I bought this. Actually, the day on this, what I'm going to tell you about, it's really interesting. And so I had this symbol. It has paint all over it now. Uh, so I remember the Broncos winning. John Mobley knocking down that final pass from Brett Favre and the realization sweeping over me. They've done it. I mean, I blew out my voice. I was screaming so loud, hugging people I don't know. It was euphoria. It was it. It was really happening. I was driving down the interstate after that, and I actually honked out loud. I never honk. Amen. Oh! My mom's famous statement growing up, Eric, if you're this excited for the Denver Broncos, how much more excited should you be for Jesus Christ? That's a classic mom statement. You don't get excited about Jesus Christ. I mean, he's just, he's God, he's great and all that, but he doesn't meet that need within us. We need sports to do that. So I have felt the euphoria 
of victory in sports. I felt the defeat and I felt the euphoria. And here we were, Leslie and I were walking through this narrow season where God's saying, come closer. Are you willing to detach from that and find the answer in me? It's scary, by the way. You almost feel like life is turning black and white. Uh, God, I don't know that I can live without that. Trust me. Come close. You'll find something in me that you will not find there. So I totally detached from sports. You know, I, I was not watching it, but now it was like my Yahoo became blueletterbible.org. That was my default homepage, still is. That is the most boring default homepage you could ever get. No offense to blueletterbible.org. It's a very helpful website, but it's like a search bar that pops up with a blinking cursor. It's like, ah, not very satisfying to the curiosity part of me. I mean, it should be. You know, God, tell me about this. I could search it. But it's like, it's not the world. It's not that information of what's going on. Give me, feed me. And I begin to find something in this. And I remember right when I began to walk into this season, guess who decides to get good? Colorado Rockies. Colorado Rockies, and those of you that know the Colorado Rockies, have stunk for years. I mean, the bottom of the barrel type of uh, ability that they've shown. And everyone in Colorado is always getting mad at them, getting mad at the owners, getting mad at the manager, getting mad at the players. Come on, I know you can bat better than that. You know, the, picture, the pitchers always have stunk in Colorado. And there's just like this grievance that we carry. Well, suddenly, and I love baseball, suddenly, I detach. And what happens? The Rockies win the wild card and go to the playoffs. God, this isn't right. I need information. I'm going to focus. I'm going to focus on Jesus, and I'm going to turn away from that as if it's dung, as if it's nothing. I remember going into a coffee shop with Leslie, and guess what's on? There's this TV up there, and I was trying to find a spot where I could look away, and it's the playoff game. They had made it to the next round. And this is what I said to Leslie. I said, they're going to go to the World Series. I know it. And it's going to be simply for my good. (laughs) And guess what? They went to the World Series. They got swept. And it was a massive disaster for all Colorado fans. Guess who was untouched? Me. Because I didn't know. This is wonderful. And here's what I told Leslie. I said, God is going to give me the World Series but the heavenly version of it. That satisfaction that you get when your king is victorious, when your team wins, I'm going to taste it, and I refuse to find it here. I want to find it in the true version. That was what I laid down on the table. That was the gauntlet I threw down before heaven. I'm headed in this direction, and I believe this verse. Thou will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So if you ask me, Eric, did you find it? I think I found something far greater because what I was comparing it to was an earthly euphoria. And so when you're looking for the match or, you know, just one step above, you oftentimes miss what God is doing. This is an abiding joy. It doesn't just come because of a victory, a momentary victory, and then fade over time like, oh, we need that again. He's won. The reality of it, penetrating our being and abiding within Everyone needs to taste it. It's like standing on Bourbon Street and then no one can take your cross. They get their own. We all get to stand there. It's like, hey, ask Jesus for your own. I'm not letting go of mine. It's like we all get to taste of that prison cell at a certain dimension so that we can understand the radiance and the beauty of his presence. 
And thus we get to the title, A Friday Night in the Promised Land. Friday night symbolizes that point in the week where suddenly we have a gap. And we are used to turning to the world to fill it. Many of you have heard me give the illustration of the three dimensions that are, dev- that are, uh, that are displayed in the Old Testament. You have the wild- uh, I'm sorry, Egypt, you have the wilderness, and you have the promised land. The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. It's symbolic in Scripture of the world, the world's system, the world's pleasures, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. This is where we find a solace and a satisfaction. We're used to it. Yes, we're enslaved, but hey, you know, at least we have those things. The wilderness is toddler Christianity. It is an emerging out, but what it has a tendency to do is look longingly back towards Egypt and what it left. But God is saying, I am delivering you out of Egypt in order that I might bring you in to a better land. A land flowing with milk and honey. And maybe you don't like milk and honey, but that's good, okay? I'm not saying you need to like milk and honey. What that means is good stuff. It's flowing with the essence of everything that is delightful to us as humans. Everything that we would need, everything that could satisfy. God is bringing us out of slavery and bringing us into himself. And many of us are here in the middle And what we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to live our week in this wilderness misery, by the way, which is not fun. It's hot. The sun bakes down on you. You have manna. You know, it's not that you don't have any evidence of God. You have a little. You know, it's like, well, I got manna today, and I saw a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. My shoes aren't wearing out. But it's not necessarily something you want to evangelize about. And when it comes to Friday night, you know what we do? We get in a little prop plane, and we fly back into Egypt for the night. Why not? That's what every other Christian does. And we partake of what the world has to offer. Teach us, mold us, shape us. Oh, I don't believe in that God. I don't actually agree with it, but at least it can meet my needs. You don't have any good options for me. We need more Christian movies. That's our thinking. We need to somehow meet the need of Christians as opposed to let Jesus Christ be the need maker. We are creating options outside of Jesus. They're not bad. It doesn't mean that a Christian movie is bad. I'd love to make a good Christian movie. Be very fascinated in that. But not as a replacement for Jesus Christ, something that presses you in to Jesus Christ. We are finding the prop plane, and we are going back into Egypt on a Friday night. There's a different model. God wants to bring us in to a land flown with milk and honey, and he doesn't say, oh, I can't really satisfy you here. You're gonna have to go back to Egypt. There's a few nights out of the week you're gonna have to find something else because I can only meet a few of your needs. Jesus says, you move in and you move in to stay. And on the Friday night, when you're saying, what can we do? I want you to realize that there's a beckoning into his presence. And if we as Christians rally together, I know it sounds depressing, to say, what can we do tonight? And it's just like, we go to Bourbon Street and hold a cross. Mm-hmm. We could. I'm not saying that is what it always has to look like, but it's being made available to Jesus Christ. We don't have a will of our own. And we don't fly back into Egypt. That isn't our option. God wants to retrain us and retool us after a completely different pattern. 
Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. This word sober typically is associated with alcohol in our mind, but it means clarity of thought, clarity of spiritual life. There is no inebriation, there's no diminishment to it, there's no fog. When you enter into the world, when you enter into the world's entertainment, when you're watching a game, when you're watching a movie, when you're watching a television show, when you enter into the world system at all, it creates a blur, and you are, have a form of inebriation, and you don't think straight, you don't reason spiritually, you suddenly lose your footing on the rock and you find yourself vulnerable. Be sober. Be watchful. Remain in the promised land. Remain in the position that God has given you because you have an enemy and he is seeking whom he may devour. And by the way, those that fall under the blood of Jesus are the first ones he wants to take down. He's watching. He knows your life because he wants to destroy it. You are arch enemy number one because you have sided with the king of the universe. This is not just a message to say, oh, there's something better. This is a message for the glory of Jesus Christ. We must remain in the promised land. We must remain in the gift of God, in the position that God gives us, in order that he would get his glory, as opposed to the enemy being able to point at you and say, look, look what I did to your child. No, no, this is for his glory. Watch and pray that she enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Gethsemane is the scene. And Jesus is at his greatest moment of trial and burden. He's carrying the sin of the world. And he says to his threes, his three mighties, Peter, James, and John, watch with me. Stay up, stay awake, be alert. Be sober, be vigilant. Because there is an enemy who is prowling about seeking whom he may devour. And what do those three do? They fall asleep. They blur over. They lose sight. And guess what Peter's doing? He's chopping off ears. And Jesus is saying, no, you're missing my plan. And then he denies him three times. He was not prepared. Now, he didn't yet have Pentecost. There is a reason. There's a demonstration. This is us outside the promised land. Peter in Gethsemane is us attempting to go in and out of the world with our entertainment, with our satisfaction and our solace. And we fall asleep when Jesus asks us to be awake. And we're wide awake in fear and trepidation when Jesus is asleep in the boat. We need to be where Jesus is. If he's sleeping in the boat and water's filling up, hey, I'm going to sleep too. I'm perfectly at peace because my God is in control. And then if he asks us to stay awake, guess what? We need the strength of God within us to be watchful to share in his sufferings, to walk the narrow way with him. Seen this scripture before? I want to introduce it to you if you haven't seen it. Thou will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You need to reckon this. This must become your reality. Not just nice poetry in the Psalms. But you need to treat it as if it is, in fact, fact. If it, as if it is indeed and in truth the word of God. And God is saying, I want to give you myself. The great statement in George Mueller's life was one of his favorite life verses. 
Open thy mouth wide, God says, and I will fill it. Are you willing, instead of going to the, the things of this earth and scarfing down the feasts that they set before us, because they're always setting a table out saying, it looks good, doesn't it? Looks good. We turn towards something and everyone's saying, there's nothing there. We say, there is something there. There's a feast. They say, I don't see it. And God says, open your mouth wide and I will let you taste of me. I will let you taste and see how good I am. And the world is looking at us, mocking us. They're saying, you have nothing. We have it all. Everything that is good, we have. But when you become a Christian, you have to leave it behind. Why would you want that? Because there's something you don't see that satisfies my soul. It's a feast that is unseen to this world's eyes, but is known in the soul of men. We taste and see. We know it. That in his presence is the fullness of joy. Ask yourself this question. If someone comes up to you and says, is that true? What is your response? Most of us would say, I agree with it because it's God's word. But have you proven it in your soul? That is the key. Prove it. If someone asks you, is it true that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore? What's your answer? Well, it's the word of God. It must be true. Then prove it in your life. Show this world that we don't need their counterfeit to meet our needs. We have everything we need in Jesus Christ. I'm not asking for paranoia in regards to movies, sports, music. I'm saying let's be purposeful to always turn first to Jesus Christ. That is the action of our soul. Jesus Christ is our first turn. Jesus Christ is where we turn for our satisfaction, our solace, our supply. Jesus Christ. We need not just a Friday night in the promised land, every moment of every day to abide in the person of Jesus Christ in order that our joy may be full. That's the secret. That's how it works. Let's pray. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.